Welcome back to Beyond Prisons. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Sonnenstein, and I'm joined by my lovely host, Kim Wilson. How are you doing, Kim? I'm doing well, Brian. How's it going this week? I'm doing all right. I'm excited to have another conversation with you today. Um, so what Kim and I are going to talk about today is a book that both of us think is a good starting point for people who are, especially people who are new to the topic of abolition. It's a book by Angela Davis, and it's called Our Prisons Obsolete, published in 2003. And it is a fairly short book. I think it's just like a, a little over 100 pages, right, Kim? It's about um, 130 pages, yeah. Right. Um, and it provides like a pretty succinct overview of sort of the concepts and the frameworks of abolition and just sort of ways to approach thinking about criminal justice, prisons, and their intersection with race uh, and economy, um, just and very and gender, you know, in very succinct and easy to understand ways. And it covers a lot of ground in just a sh- few short pages. It moves pretty quickly. So, you know, I personally, it was one of the first books that I read on the subject of abolition. I found it really interesting and it, it provoked a lot of thoughts for me that made me go off <clears throat> and in a bunch of different directions and, and look more into the subject. Before we dive in, Kim, do you have any other thoughts just on the book as a whole? Yeah, I mean, I think that the book really does something that is not touched on by most mainstream conversations on criminal justice. So it places this question, are prisons obsolete, not just as a title, but as the driver in terms of what is going to happen within the book and things that we should be thinking about. And I think that's a really powerful uh, way to deal with this question of abolition. Right. So do we even need prisons? Right. That's really what the question is saying. It's like, this thing is kind of outdated, outmoded. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the question answers itself and it's almost rhetorical, but it's not obvious. Right. And I think that that's uh, the the powerful thing about this book, at least for me. Uh, And as you point out, it's also, you know, extremely accessible. So if any listeners don't have, you know, a background in terms of abolition, or they're looking for a place to begin, or they're looking to have, you know, conversations in their own homes, in their communities, in their churches, and, you know, uh, whatever groups they're around and, and people that they're with, that this is a really good book to to do that with, right? Because right. everybody can read it. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's short, like you said, so it's not like it's 600, you know, pages, and it's not heavily laden with a lot of jargon and things right. like that. Uh, and that makes it you know, I think um, a must read. Uh, It's something that I would highly recommend uh, to have uh, on your shelf. Uh, And I keep going back to this book over and over and over again. I've used it in workshops. I've used it in courses. I've uh, done tweet storms about it. And, you know, here we are. I'm doing a podcast on it. Hooray! (laughs) <laughs> so yeah it, it, it's really my book is marked up it's you know it's 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 a handbook it's not just you know a book to read and to kind of put away it's it's a handbook yeah so, and it's it's almost like a pamphlet honestly like a political pamphlet like it's very it's very persuasive and moving and in like a very solid um argument and you know like we've said in in all of our episodes so far 
Um, it's not perfect. This is a very fluid conversation. A lot of these things are up for debate, um, but it is a it's a great starting point. You know, on the subject of the title, I, she, there's this one part in there where she talks about how the question in itself, like you said, it, it's it's not an obvious one, but it is an essential one, and it's a very powerful one, and it's a question um, that gets to the heart of one of the first things that I want to talk about for our discussion today. And that is something that I actually, we got quite a bit of feedback uh, on our first episode. And some people were telling me that they're really interested in this idea of the inevitability of prisons. And I think part of our understanding of the inevitability of prisons um, feeds into this questions of why we take prisons for granted as a feature of our natural environment in the first place. Um, And I wanna read a couple lines from this book on this subject that I think are really good. So it begins, at bottom, there is one fundamental question. Why do we take prison for granted? While a relatively small proportion of the population has ever directly experienced life inside prison, this is not true in poor black and Latino communities. Neither is it true for Native Americans or for certain Asian American communities. But even among those people who most regrettably accept prison sentences, especially young people, As an ordinary dimension of community life, it is hardly acceptable to engage in serious public discussion about prison life or radical alternatives to prison. It is as if prison were an inevitable fact of life, birth, and death. On the whole, people tend to take prisons for granted. It is difficult to imagine life without them. At the same time, there is a reluctance to face the realities hidden within them, a fear of thinking about what happens inside of them. Thus, the prison is present in our lives and, at the same time, it is absent from our lives. So I think that's one place to start. I think, you know, the prison is, you know, first of all, for black and brown people and for their communities. Um, And, you know, I would even say for, like, liberal-minded people and white people who are looking to reform the system or to bring relief or reduce harm for their, their community, even they would accept that well, the prison is a feature of life in these communities. Um, it's an ordinary dimension of the poverty that we just regrettably accept. And, you know, there's no attempt to try to explain that. So that's one area. And then I'll just read a little bit more. To think about the simultaneous presence and absence is to begin to acknowledge the part played by ideology in shaping the way we interact with our social surroundings. We take prisons for granted, but are often afraid to face the realities they produce. After all, no one wants to go to prison. And she goes on to say, we thus think about imprisonment as a fate reserved for others, a fate reserved for the, quote, evildoers, to use a term recently popularized by George W. Bush. Remember, this book came out in 2003. And because of the persistent power of racism, criminals and evildoers are, in the collective imagination, fantasized as people of color. So it's, you know, it's always there in the background, the prison. Most of us uh, in America will not see it. And so it's this place that's in our mind, but out of sight. Um, And it's a place where others go. People who are bad, people who do bad things, they're evil. And in our collective imagination, these are racialized, fantasized people of color. And I think that that is like a really succinct way to sort of encapsulate how we just accept that the prison is there. And I think just knowing, just having it sort of read back to you like that, your reality, it kind of just opens up. I mean, at least it did for me, Kim. I don't know if you have anything to say about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, that that passage there, and I have that highlighted, underlined, you know, there's uh, notes and margins and little asterisks and whatnot around that. The important phrase in there for me is that this is the ideological work that is performed, you know, in terms of uh, when we think about right, that this is the ideological work that is happening, that we are supposed to take it for granted, right, by making something that is so ever-present in communities that we feel disconnected from, right, communities that we don't belong to by virtue of, you know, whatever demographic or characteristic, Mm -hmm. um, you know, separates us, we can ignore the fact that prison impacts millions of people, right? Right. And you're supposed to ignore that it exists, right? Uh, Outside of what I think are some, you know, acceptable parameters, right? So Mm -hmm. we're talking about, you know, humane conditions. Okay, well, we can, you know, get on board with more humane treatment of incarcerated people, but we can't really talk about abolishing prisons because what is that right right people are very comfortable talking about you know popular tv shows uh that are based in prison uh and that attempt to depict prison life and glamorize it and romanticize it in a lot of ways with you know perhaps some elements of truth in those stories but again, that also creates a separation and a division. And that's part of what I take away from it in terms of this notion of ideological work, right? So it's right. working on you without you being aware that it's working on you, you know, and that's the whole point right there, right? right. Once you clue into that, once you are pushed in that direction, and this is what abolition work does, is that, again, it seeks to make visible that thing that capitalism, that, you know, white supremacy and, you know, what have you want to make invisible. That's a really important point right at the beginning uh, and a really good place to start. Um, you know, yeah. And one, one more thing real quick is, and you, you were touching on it there, and it's the last line of this paragraph, actually. It's, um, you know, this is the ideological work that the prison performs. It relieves us of the responsibility of seriously engaging with the problems of our society, especially those produced by racism and increasingly global capitalism. And I mean, that's a pretty profound thought if you think about it, because for most people, you would uh, equate prisons with with responsibility, right? Like the Mm -hmm. act of incarcerating somebody is forcing them to take responsibility for their actions. But in reality, it's the rest of us just absolving ourselves of responsibility for the conditions that created the the situation in the first place. So Mm -hmm. I just, I just wanted to, to just touch on that even one more time, because I think it's so fundamental to this. But what about you? What what are some things that you, you like in the book? Oh, there's so much. uh... I know. To, to like in the book. I think what's useful in terms of what Davis is doing is to lay out in very clear terms, there was life before prisons existed. Yep. Right. And this notion of taking prisons for granted now <laughs> um, is, you know, it, it, that we can 
by taking a historical perspective and having a historical lens go back and say, well, wait a minute, before we had prisons, or at least prisons as we know them today, what was there before? And this is what she's doing in the early part of the text. And she explores, uh, you know, the, the idea that um, prisons were designed and thought of as the more humane option, which is freaking mind boggling <laughs> about it. Like, what? I mean, it, 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 you really have to be in a fucked up place in life. To well, yeah. Prison is a more humane alternative to, you know, the other really horrendous things that were happening, right? So right. the death penalty and torture, which, you know, prisons became an alternative for, right? Um, the, the, those are horrible things, of course. Uh, but the idea that putting people in prison and, you know, attaching a number you know, in, in terms of year, quantifying this in terms of years is a more humane option, right? And right. when you think about this, you know, uh, and, and this is the thing that really frustrates me. I'll, I'll use frustrate right now instead of other, you know, F words that I use. <laughs> um, is that death penalty abolition folks really advocate and, and they get upset when you say that, you know, life in prison without the possibility of parole is not a more humane option to the death penalty, right? right. The, 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 these things are just, no, like, <laughs> you can't do that. Um, so Davis takes us through the, the, early, uh, the early history of the prison, right? And she talks about you know, Jeremy Bentham's The Panopticon, which I think is uh, an important point in terms of understanding that history, right? So Bentham imagined a facility, you know, where prisoners would believe that they were being observed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? And his reasoning for this, and she describes this in the book, was fiscal, was financial, uh, really had to do with the, the economic savings associated with having people police and surveil themselves, right? So if you have a bunch of people in cells where, you know, the idea is that there's a tower, a guard tower, um, and, you know, the guard could see all the prisoners, but the prisoners could not see whether there was a guard in that tower at any given point in time, that they would behave, right? That they would, you know, stay in line. Right. Um, and and this is this idea. I mean, while while the Panopticon was never technically built, not you know during Bentham's time, the idea of the Panopticon, you know, uh, has endured and it has stayed with us, right? So, um, you know, what what frustrates me about this whole thinking around prisons as being a more humane alternative to the death penalty is that we hear this. We hear the same kind of language being spoken by death penalty abolitionists, right? Who are really prison reformers, not abolitionists in, in any right. way that I'm thinking about abolition, right? These are folks who are very much wedded to the idea that, you know, life in prison without the possibility of parole, of course, is a better option. 
Well, talk to people who have life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole and ask them, right, if they feel as if that's a better option. So right. There's a major disconnect here in, in terms of those ideas. And I think that, you know, this is one of the places where if you don't know much about the history of prisons in our society, Davis does a very good job of laying this out and talking about that. Another point that she raises, and this is, you know, early in the text in chapter two, uh, was it chapter two or chapter one? She talks about, you know, the, the idea of how prisons and how the criminal justice system quantifies punishment in terms of years, mm-hmm. right? And how that idea and that notion follows the same trajectory as the rise in wage labor, yep. right? So we can't disconnect what is happening in terms of incarceration and the history of prisons in our society without also looking at wage labor in this country. The other point that she makes is that, you know, early advocates of prisons were religious groups, right, and religious people. And that, you know, from the design of prisons, you know, to the way that we discipline uh, people inside of prisons, that these things were rooted in some religious thinking. And it, it was championed by people who saw themselves as really advocating for more humane treatment of people who were being punished. Right. Everything from monastic existence, right? Um, uh, Solitary confinement. These things have their roots in religious advocates who wanted (laughs) to transform the society and to transform, you know, uh, the way that people were being punished in ways that they thought were more humane than just killing somebody, right? Or right. Uh, it, it, torturing someone. Um, and this is really a problem. I mean, this is, and we see this today. We see this happening in prisons all around the country, all around the globe, really, today. And we can talk about that. We should, you know, really explore that a little bit more. What are some other things about the, the book that, stand out to you and what are some of the the points that you find yeah just i mean just going off what you just said there at the end too i think it's also important to note that the idea behind prisons in their inception and the the idea of the penitentiary as a as the punishment itself instead of where you would go before receiving capital or corporal punishment is that the results never really played out, right? Like long-term solitary confinement that was going on, these very austere conditions where, I mean, in in the early, you know, in the late 18th, early 19th century, you literally had basically prison experiments where they were locking people up in all different kinds of conditions and seeing what would quote unquote rehabilitate, quote unquote, sort of emancipate the soul of the individual and help them recognize, you know, their true potential. So this like merging of, these religious ideas and these um, industrialist capitalist ideas that were all sort of converging at the time. Um, And then as time goes on and, you know, this sort of idea of rehabilitation starts to fall away and then it becomes almost um, the idea of rehabilitation or providing services to prisoners, you know, in, um, in the mid to late 20th century becomes coddling prisoners, right? Providing Mm -hmm. education, 
providing treatment. Um, this is not punishment enough. And so you start to see like even the like the well-intentioned but ineffectual parts of this idea of this ideology behind this system, you know, just sort of floating away. So I just thought that that was interesting. And you know, this whole historical conversation, it's important because it, it, like it goes both ways. Like on the one hand, you know, it, it goes to show that things can change over time and that there, things are not inevitable, but it also goes to show that like there's no clean breaks in history and that there's threads of racism, of other forms of bigotry that, that go throughout history and sort of allow these systems to not fully be abolished, but to, to change shape while the ideas and the, the sort of cultural um, and racist uh, ideas are allowed to persist. So one of the passages right here in the first chapter that, that I want to touch on, it, it's right on page 10 if anyone has a copy of the text and they want to follow along. She says, are we willing to relegate ever larger numbers of people from racially oppressed communities to an isolated existence marked by authoritarian regimes, violence, disease, and technologies of seclusion that produce severe mental instability? So she's asking some very big questions here, right? And right. this is, you know, this is part of the work of thinking through where we are today. How did we get to this point, right? And going back to, you know, why do we take these things for granted, right? As now during, you know, uh, our first episode, uh, public policy really doesn't have anything to say about prison abolition. That's not the goal of public policy. Public policy is to work within the frameworks of existing, you know, governmental institutions and policies and laws and what have you. And, and that's it. So those parameters make it uh, difficult to imagine anything outside of that framework, outside of those parameters. Right. However, knowing that prisons don't work, right? So <laughs> it's like they don't work. This isn't speculation. This right. Isn't some fantasy. This is okay. False advertising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can look at we can look at the evidence, decades of evidence. We can look at the numbers, and we can say that you know prisons have not worked. They have not worked in terms of the deterrent factor. They they mm -hmm. don't deter anyone from committing crimes. Right. right? Um, what they do, if anything, is that they reinforce the structures that perpetuate the problems that we're saying that we're trying to remedy by sending people to prison. So Davis's book attempts to address a lot of these things in a very short period of time. And, you know, for the most part, she succeeds. She succeeds in answering these questions and, you know, making that distinction between what reform, uh, what reformers want, and what an abolitionist, you know, praxis, because it's not just um, an abolitionist theory or an abolitionist idea or what have you. It really is a way forward, right? It's right. it's a roadmap. There are things that we can do, you know, uh, to get us there, and that work is. It's not complete. It's not done. It's endless and there's so many places and spaces institutions organizations companies 
areas of life that are impacted by prisons and by carcerality that there's no shortage of work places where we can you know bring in an abolitionist perspective and have an impact and attempt to imagine and create something different that said i mean i I think that there's also you know she she talks about early in the book she uh says that if she had to imagine 30 years ago a situation where you know the u.s would have over 2 million people incarcerated right living in cages what like no there's no way you know it's like when when she's thinking about you know back in the in the 60s or 70s right you know there were 200,000 people you know in prisons and that was that was astronomical then right and then you know fast forward 30 years and now we're talking about over 2 million people in cages and now over 7 million people under you know yeah. the the surveillance regime uh through other forms of oppression you know including parole and probation what have you right. but for me i have no illusions of what america is capable of I have no illusions about what this country is capable of doing. I mean, how could you at this point? I, I, I can't even <laughs> imagine, right? So if there are people who are like, oh, there's no way. America would never. Uh, d- hello? Like, where have you been? Like, where are you? What yeah. is going on? It's like we, it, someone failed you, right? What are some other things that have stood out to you um, in this book? And why do you think it's a useful text? for people coming to abolition for the first time or for people looking to learn more, to know more about what prison abolition is and what some of these questions are about. What things stand out to you, Brian? I mean, I think one of the things that I find really important about this book too is um, it's not just about prisons, but she talks about sort of this idea of punishment in general and uh, our proclivity towards punishment, um, how there's a whole industry Uh, and a corporate industry around punishment. You know, she gets into this notion of the prison industrial complex, which is something um, that has sort of gained popularity in recent years in terms of our understanding. Um, At the time she was writing this, private prisons were still pretty new, but she goes into, you know, a lot of history there and a lot of um, sort of this idea of industrial complexes and how they work. So if the, I'm sure people out there who are listening to this have heard all sorts of things about private prisons, but if you're sort of wondering where that came from, you know, she talks about this sort of punishment economy, which I think is, is really important for reformers because we need to recognize that just calling something rehabilitation or post-release or, you know, some program on the inside, it doesn't become good or produce the intended effect just by having its name. And there, and we touched on this in the first episode, there's other books that do a great job on this subject that I would like to talk about someday. But there's this, this idea, these forms of punishment, and these systems that are woven into even our, our medical fields, and our mental health fields that reproduce harm and that ultimately refeed into the prison system. So I think that's that's just sort of this mindset and this conversation about punishment and seeing trying to identify punishment in different places, even outside the specific institution of the prison, is is really good. So that's just that's just one thing that came to my mind. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, um 
going off of what you just said, a lot of what the book is aiming to do and, and does quite well is to point out how the prison really exacerbates social problems and doesn't really solve them. Right. right? So this is part of what is happening here in the book. So she's giving you the history. She's going and, and talking about not just the history of prisons in our society and tracing that trajectory, but, you know, in the second chapter, taking us and moving us through, you know, the history of slavery and civil rights and abolitionist perspectives towards prison. And I think that history is also an important part of the conversation. And in other episodes, we have, we've planned to talk about, you know, different historical time periods and the implications of them for prison abolition and prison abolition work today. So we're not going to dive too deeply into any of them, but I think it's important to touch on them just a little bit because they are in the book. In chapter two specifically, you know, she's talking about, for example, the post-Civil War structures of punishment in the South, right? And for those who want to follow along, so on page 33, and, you know, and, and I'll read the passage here. It's, it's a rather long passage, so bear with me. Uh, she says, historian Marianne Curtin has observed that many scholars who have acknowledged a deeply entrenched racism of the post-Civil War structures of punishment in the South have failed to identify the extent to which racism colored common sense understanding of the circumstances surrounding the wholesale criminalization of Black communities. Even anti-racist historians, she contends, do not go far enough in examining the ways in which Black people were made into criminals. They point out, and this, she says, is indeed partially true, that in the aftermath of emancipation, large numbers of Black people were forced by their new social situation to steal in order to survive. Mm-hmm. It was the transformation of petty thievery into a felony that relegated substantial numbers of Black people into the involuntary servitude legalized by the 13th Amendment. What Curtin suggests is that these charges of theft were frequently fabricated outright. They also served as subterfuge for political revenge. After emancipation, the courtroom became the ideal place to exact racial retribution. In this sense, the work of the criminal justice system was intimately related to the extra-legal work of lynching. There's so much in that one paragraph right there. There are so many layers to what she is doing and what the book gets at in terms of the history of racism in American society, right? These things cannot be divorced, decoupled, extracted from a contemporary analysis of carcerality in our society, right? right? If you're talking about prison today, and, and you hear this all the time, You hear this, you know, politicians, you hear, you know, advocates say, oh, this isn't about race, right? These people have no idea what they're talking about and don't trust them. That's all I'm going to say about that, right? I mean, there's no way to look at, honestly look at the contemporary prison system and not 
only draw parallels to other oppressive regimes of the past, whether it's segregation, lynching, Jim Crow, or slavery, but also to draw a through line through history to what is going on today. So you talked about this uh, sort of shape shifting that is going on uh, in terms of policies and laws that, you know, make it seem as if these forms of, you know, racist oppression have, you know, or have been relegated to a distant past, but they're not. Right. They're not. Absolutely. And that's where she begins the book. This is where, you know, she is taking us and she's taking us on this journey by explaining this history and making very clear and lucid the, you know, the, the fact that prisons are racist institutions. She frames this as a question later on in the text, but take it to be rhetorical. I mean, come on. Right. (laughs) can't ask that question honestly and say oh okay you know do you think prisons are racist Uh, just stop like I'm I'm not bothering I'm not wasting my time um that's just not where I'm going to put my energy right so uh so you know there's that uh there for me what what are some other uh, things I know you yeah the other thing I was going to bring up too, and something you you raised in the very beginning, she has a really great discussion in here about prisons and gender. And it's a really interesting discussion because it delves into our perceptions of crime and punishment and how men and women sort of fit into that. So I'm going to read a little bit here, if you don't mind. I don't have the real book in front of me. I have an ebook, so I don't know what page this is on, but <laughs> hopefully you will be able to find it. It's in the, there's a chapter on um, gender and prisons later on in the book, so it's, it's in there. Um, but it reads four. Yeah, chapter four. How chapter four. It reads Since the end of the 18th century, when, as we have seen, imprisonment began to emerge as the dominant form of punishment, convicted women have been represented as essentially different from their male counterparts. It is true that men who commit the kinds of transgressions that are regarded as punishable by the state are labeled as social deviants. Nevertheless, masculine criminality has always been deemed more normal than feminine criminality. There has always been a tendency to regard those women who have been publicly punished by the state for their misbehaviors as significantly more aberrant and far more threatening to society than their numerous male counterparts. And this is something that we should also especially take into consideration because even though there are very small, modest declines in the prison population on the federal level, women are are like the fastest growing segment of the population. And a lot of this has to do with breakdown um, in the economy, with the difficulty of providing for, you know, a family and raising children in this economy. But the, the discussion is, is also interesting because she goes into how we then treat men and women differently because of this perception and how it is imbued in the prison. In seeking to understand this gender difference in the perception of prisoners, it should be kept in mind that as the prison emerged and evolved as the major form of public punishment, women continue to be routinely subjected to forms of punishment that have not been acknowledged as such. For example... Women have been incarcerated in psychiatric institutions in greater proportions than in prisons. Studies indicating that women have been even more likely to end up in mental facilities than men suggest that while jails and prisons have been dominant institutions for the control of men, mental institutions have served a similar purpose for women. 
That is, deviant men have been constructed as criminal, while deviant women have been constructed as insane. And so again, like, uh, I, f I find this really important too, because it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how incarceration um, affects different groups of people in different ways, and it's not always like incarceration as we know it from movies and television, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's another really interesting part of the book. And that chapter is really great for talking about um, a lot of the, the different ways that um, women are treated in prison than men um, and how the prison is constructed uh, as a sort of a male institution um, mm -hmm. that doesn't you know, cater to any of the needs of rehabilitation and survival of women. Um, Absolutely. Did you, I don't know if you have anything else to say on that. It was kind of a, I kind of glossed over a, a big and important chapter in the book, but um, I don't know, anything come to your mind? No, we, we can certainly go back, but I think that, again, what, what are things that are jumping out to you, yep. things that are jumping out to me? We, we, can, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, so we can bounce around the text and not necessarily stick to a chronological order here. But the chapter on gender differences in prisons is an important one, and I think it's certainly one that, you know, if I have anything to say about it, there, we're not just going to do one or two episodes about women. Oh, absolutely. This is going to be part of an ongoing conversation. Women, if we're looking at the numbers and, and statistics here, uh, a sentence, uh, one of the sentencing projects, fact sheets on incarcerated women and girls, says that between 1980 and 2014, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%, rising from a total of 26,378 in 1980 to 215,332 in 2014, right? A 700% increase in the incarcerated population of women, right? And that's even larger when we're talking about black women right if it's happening to men it's happening to women right and and i've read critiques you know and reviews of uh our prisons obsolete that you know want to say oh well she's talking about women more than she's talking about men well the conversation on prison centers around men right? yeah. men are at the heart of that so when people are talking about prisons and about imprisonment in this country, about mass incarceration, it's about men and boys, right? So what Davis is doing in this text and it is to push back against that and to say, okay, there's an important thing that y'all have been missing here, right? right. <laughs> and here it is, that you need to attend to what is happening with women. Because again, in terms of the way that we take things for granted, uh, we don't think of women as, you know, as particularly criminal. And she mm -hmm. says this in this chapter, she says, you know, women tend to get treated as if they're, you know, uh, mentally insane. Right. So our behaviors get coded and read and treated differently within the criminal justice system. And that's a significant thing for us to understand if we are going to push back against you know, these half-assed reforms, you know, that want to neglect the fact that women are being brutalized, terrorized in a lot of ways that mainstream conversations on prisons do not attend to. And I think that 
this is a difficult chapter. It was a difficult chapter for me to read. She does discuss, you know, the kind of uh, sexual abuse and sexual violence that women in prison experience. It's not just heartbreaking, but it's a horrifying, right? Yeah. So they describe and warning to folks who, you know, may be triggered by this conversation that this is really difficult and it can be, can get graphic. Um, Understanding that, you know, if you are a teenager, you know, you can be raped by a guard or a staff member at the juvenile facility and, it, it just, and, and that's just not taken seriously, right? That's ignored, right. right? So women are going to prison for oftentimes nonviolent crimes, uh, drug addiction, other petty crimes. They're unable to afford cash bail, which is a very real thing. And it keeps a lot of particularly poor women, but especially poor black and brown women incarcerated and caught up in that cycle for a very long period of time, right? Right. Women lose the right to their children, right? Women don't get the visitations that men get. I, I was listening to an episode of Another Round, the one with Remy Ma in it, you haven't listened to that episode and you're interested in prisons, definitely check it out. It was, I listened to that episode several times because there were so many things that Remy Ma was saying in that episode that speak to what we're talking about here in terms of the conditions in prison for women, not having access to things like feminine hygiene products having to, you know, organize and band together against some of the dehumanizing things that are taking place within the prison, you know, and how that was something that was really powerful for her. But Davis is doing it in this text in in prisons are obsolete or are prisons obsolete. See, there you go. I'm I'm changing the title. (laughs) Prisons Um, are obsolete. We'll answer that question. That's right. That's the follow-up book. Um, yeah, that's what we're writing. One <laughs> we're writing. Um, but, you know, she, she describes strip searches. And strip searches are sexual violence. Because, you know, oftentimes women are undergoing cavity searches. And you undergo cavity searches under the threat of having to go to the hole or to the shoe, where you will spend maybe days, if you're lucky, and in giant scare quotes, or weeks or months, if you're not so lucky, if you refuse, right? So there's no, there's no refusal. Yes, it's important to take stock of what is happening in prisons for men, and what is happening to men in prison, and young boys as well. But in that analysis, there we can do both of these things at the same time. There, it's not an either or; it's a both and. Right. And we can do both at the same time. We can attend to the problems that are happening, you know, with men, and also talk about what is happening with women because women are suffering even more uh, as a result of you know incarceration. And this isn't a system that you can fix. This is really the takeaway from the book, right? 
that this is not a system that you can fix, right? And this is the 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 space where reformers and abolitionists really, you know, um, don't see eye to eye on this. For reformers, it's well, we can, you know, they, they say things like, "Well, the system is broken," right? Right. And that's basically saying, okay, a few quick fixes here and there, patching it up and whatever, you know, and, and we can keep this fucked up system in place, you know, and keep it moving. So there's no real stepping back and interrogating whether this is a system that we want to have in our lives anyway, and whose right. interests are being served by the existence of, you know, of, of the prison industrial complex. And abolitionists are like, okay, we understand that there are short-term things that need to happen, but this is a long-term goal. This is an ideal. And this is the thing that we're working towards. We can't just be satisfied with, right. with the status quo. We can't be satisfied with substituting one policy that is generally oppressive and generally dehumanizing for another less dehumanizing but still dehumanizing policy right right looking at this quote from the book right now and it 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 very much illustrates what i think you're saying um and i I just want to read it really quick it's just two sentences and it's to say to reiterate and this is in um i believe the last chapter which is about abolition advocacy um and it says to reiterate Rather than try to imagine one single alternative to the existing system of incarceration, we might envision an an array of alternatives that will require radical transformations of many aspects of our society. And here's the important part. Alternatives that fail to address racism, male dominance, homophobia, class bias, and other structures of domination will not, in the final analysis, lead to decarceration and will not advance the goal of abolition. And I think even just leaving that last part off about not advancing the goal of abolition, I think a lot of these reforms and these things that you that you just discussed, they don't address racism, they don't address male dominance, they don't address homophobia or other structures of domination that are all central to the prison. Instead, it's about making a better prison, a more a kinder, more gentler prison. And uh, and so yeah, I I just thought um, I wanted to read that quote to people because I think that is the important thing about why reform, why prisons are obsolete, right? Why reform can't work uh, the way that a lot of us would like to hope it would because it doesn't address these strains, uh, these toxic strains of domination. Yeah, I had that passage highlighted as well. And I'm glad you pointed that out because it, it really is important and it does speak to and tie back to, you know, the other things in, in earlier chapters. But it, it also very nicely and succinctly, you know, gets at what abolition, you know, what the goals of abolition are and you know, the things that need to be addressed. Like you can, you know, you have to attend to homophobia. You have to attend to misogyny. You have to attend to racism. You have to attend to male dominance. And there's no need or reason to say, okay, well, you know, we don't want to talk about racism today. You know, we're just going to talk about this other thing. You know, we'll deal with racism at another time. Again, I think of this as the intellectual equivalent of walking and chewing gum at the same time, right? Right. Like we can do both, right? right? We can do both. And you have to do these things 
simultaneously, which is why an intersectional analysis, again, is you know, something that we raised in, in the first episode, is important, right? We don't live single issue lives. If you're living at the intersection of these various categories or systems, you're black, if you're a woman, if you're poor, if you, what have you on down the line, that complicates things for you even more, right? So there is no, well, let's just attend to this one thing. Let's talk about the men first, you know, and we'll get to you women later. Right. Right. Like we, we get time for that. Like we can, we can do both at the same time. And this is where, you know, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this in an episode down the road. You know, because we assume the inevitability of prisons and they're always there. Um, we fail to recognize that there are some things that like, you know, while, while you and I would argue like, nobody belongs in prison. There are some things that we try to make happen in prisons or under the auspices of punishment that just are, they can't, like, you just can't do that. Right. For one thing, women raising children in prison, right? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously it's important for women to have connection to their children, but like, why are we prioritizing keeping the women locked up instead of keeping them with their children? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, like, well, they, They're looking at that and they're basically saying, you know, what these religious reformers, right you know, in the 18th century, we're thinking of, you know, they're saying, oh, well, look, it's more humane to not separate mothers and from their children. Right. Okay. But there, of all the options that you could have put out on the table, <laughs> you looked at the range of options and possibilities and you said, okay, having women go home, right? Nope. Not nope. Happy. Can't do that. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Putting women, you know, their community and giving them some other kind of supports and trying to understand why the women committed X crime or why we have criminalized certain actions that are committed by women and coded those things as criminal, right? So if a woman has an addiction problem, addiction should not lead to a criminal conviction, right? right? That is so flawed. And it is out of touch with what the reality of people's lives is. Right. And then we put, you know, we like force them to undergo drug treatment under like a court order without recognizing some of the difficulties and maybe getting to that drug treatment, adhering to that drug treatment, uh, you know, trying to get treatment in a room full of 30 people, uh, you know, where you're like coping. But you know that that's not even that's not even a serious attempt. Right. No, I know, but I'm just saying, like, we we justify these things by pretending they're serious attempts, but they fall apart upon inspection very quickly. They do, and in, and yet we keep giving money to these yeah. programs, and yet these are the kinds of things, you know, that judges have to work with. This is, you know, the, the this is a system that we have, right? And this system isn't working, right? It's like, it's, she talks about, you know, Davis talks about the idea of the prison and, you know, connecting, um, you know, prisons to safety and security, you know, was really sold to the American public in very simplistic terms. Right. So it's the same thing. So when people imagine, you know, crime, criminality or criminals, they have a particular picture in their head of who that is, right? 
And mm -hmm. that's part of the problem here. And that's something that, you know, she's doing there. But again, to, to your example of, you know, women in prison, of all of these options, we couldn't, you know, imagine saying, let these women be at home with their children. What can we do to support these women? What can we do to support these children so that we can, you know, break the cycles of whether it's violence, addiction, abuse, you know, um, the lack of education, giving them, you know, not just right. Not just job training, right, for low-level, low-wage jobs, which Davis also touches upon, but really giving them a shot at life. Like, we don't want to see certain people succeed in this country, right? Right. It's giant scare quotes. If other went away, you know, it's like your president would have nothing to talk about. Yep. President. But um, that aside, you know, it's like, who would he beat up on? Right. Who is the, the convenient you know, group that you would beat up on if other didn't exist in in that sense? Right. Yeah. So if if people did actually have equal opportunity, if people actually had access to not just good education, but decent health care, including mental health care, the, the world would look very different than it currently does. Right. And, are not some far-fetched ideas out there that, you know, um, are, are somehow going to undermine, you know, the fabric of America. If the fabric of America is what it is today, then that fabric needs to be torn up, burnt, trashed, whatever. I mean, and that's kind of where I am. And I think that, you know, the book takes you through so much of this history and it can be it can be a difficult book to read uh it's an easy book to read in terms of accessibility pointed out but it can be difficult because you begin to get a sense if you didn't know before of how enormous this problem is of the prison industrial complex and how much it is a part of our lives even if we're unaware of the fact that it's part of our lives, you know, right. an example from the book and, you know, one that I, uh, that we all live, you know, or at least that I lived has to do with, you know, when she's describing prison labor, you know, particularly in California uh, builds the furniture that is used in schools and in universities throughout the state. Mm -hmm. Right here you go, you're at a college university. And you know, you think that, okay, well, the prison industrial complex and prisons, that's something that's happening out there that's disconnected from our lives, we don't have to think about it. But you're literally sitting at a desk that was built by someone in prison. Mm -hmm. right? And you don't know that that's, that's what she means when she talks about you get to take it for granted, you have no sense of where the things that you're using, you're consuming the things in your daily life, are coming from and the exploitation of, you know, people inside of prison is allowing you to have that comfortable life where you don't have to think about it. Right. And, and a problem. And meanwhile, we act like the prison is up there with like the sun and the moon, right? It's all over. And she talks about this in the book. She's got a great little section about how, uh, how in important prisons are to literature to movies and mm -hmm. how uh, 
you know, we have a whole genre of film, of prison film, and we don't really pay much mind to that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's such an important part of our, like, social narrative, but we spend so little time interrogating it that, like, you can be, you know, that's that's the the great, the, the mind-blowing part to me is that you can have this, this student, this hypothetical student like you were talking about, who could be sitting there watching Lockup on MSNBC, uh, mm -hmm. sitting in a chair made by a prisoner, and yep. not be able to put these things together, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so that's, I mean, that's just um, another part of the book that I would encourage people to ponder is, you know, in addition to a lot of this stuff, just the cultural, like, how, where this stuff is, it's all around us, and we literally act like, you know, the prison grew out of the ground just like a tree did, you know, and it's mm -hmm. part of mother nature. Um, I don't know, is there anything else, Kim? There's just so much, there's so much, in this book that, you know, we could spend hours on, right. weeks, weeks <laughs> on, um, that, you know, one short episode is, you know, clearly not going to be all encompassing and comprehensive. And it's not intended to be, it's meant, mm -hmm. you know, the, this conversation uh, is meant to give people a sense of what they can do for you if you're interested in prisons in general, but a prison abolition specifically. And it also gives you a good starting point if you are trying to develop an understanding around what the counter arguments are to reform, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that that's an important way to push back and to contest the prison industrial complex is you need to know what the argument is, but you need to know how to counter that. And you need to know what to say in response to people when they say having chain gangs for women the same way that there were chain gangs for men. That's not what we mean by equality. Like, right. Not, you know, just a move forward. It's not a step forward. That, right. you know, that's problematic. And understanding how this entire system consumes people, right? And how it, um, it, it sucks you in, right? And you're, you're in it, even if you don't know that you're in it, right? And I think mm -hmm. that the, the final final thoughts here and the last chapter is you know it, it's it's a good chapter there are things that we can you know expand upon uh later on but i think that it gives you a place to sort of to think about and to settle on in terms of you know uh what are some abolitionist strategies and what you can do in a place of punishment right so punishment mm -hmm. is not an inevitable thing Right. So can we imagine, you know, a way um, to address these kinds of problems that does not automatically in a knee jerk response kind of way say, OK, go to prison. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, so thinking of punishment in, in different ways, there's a passage here on page 107 and she says, if it is true that the contemporary meaning of punishment is fashioned through these relationships, then the most effective abolitionist strategies will contest these relationships and propose alternatives that pull them apart. What then would it mean to imagine a system in which punishment is not allowed to become the source of corporate profit? How can we imagine a society in which race and class are not primary determinants of punishment? Or one in which punishment itself is no longer the central concern in the making of justice. 
you know, and there's, these are questions that people need to start to think about. And these are questions that are not attended to in, in the media, certainly not in the corporate media. Um, they're not attended to in policy discussions or in most conversations that have to do with prisons and with carcerality in this country. And I think that you have to do this if you want to see something different, mm -hmm. right? You really care about people. And if you really care about communities, right? And you're true to that, that reform falls short, right? And the reform movement can only get you more of the same stuff. It's not transformational. And that's what I think is really the major takeaway of the book for me. So I'm glad we, you know, had this conversation today. I'm looking forward to going back and bringing on guests that can help us think about some of these other issues more in depth. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, do you have any final thoughts? No, I think I think that was great. I think just really quickly, a couple of final things that I would say is that to your last point, I mean, I would e I would even go further and say that not only does reform fall short, but it actually is counterproductive in the sense that when you have these reform movements, they happen in cycles, right? They have they don't happen. They're not going on in perpetuity. It's like every you know couple of years, every couple of decades, politicians return to these questions. And when you solidify some of these reforms, instead of addressing these larger questions of abolition, you've effectively shut down debate for like another cycle. And you've given politicians and policymakers a pass where they said, okay, we did it. You know, like, let me wipe my hands and be done with it. Uh, and we can move on to the other, th the other ways that we're pillaging the economy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so I think that, I mean, that's something that I, I've seen as a journalist time and time again, where you have these sort of milk toast reforms and it's like garbage, but the politicians are like, what? I did it. You know, like, what else do you want from me? Like I said earlier, I mean, I'm not looking to, you know, politicians, American, you know, politicians to, oh, no. to transform anything. Politicians that we're seeing, you know, their goal is to get reelected. Exactly. Um, their goals are, you know, raise money to get reelected. <laughs> to get elected. I mean, I, I just, I, I mean, I could go in on, you know, right. in politicians, but you know. Um, but the 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 other the last thing that I wanted to say is that you know, like you you were saying earlier, like there's some parts of this book that are going to be really hard to read they're going to make you feel uncomfortable and, and indeed as we go through this podcast there's going to be a lot of times where people are going to feel uncomfortable um, there's absolutely and I, I think this is an important thing to point out to people especially people who are new to a lot of this thinking there are going to be a lot of times of introspection where you feel sort of ashamed of yourself for thinking a certain way for a long time or you know having a knee-jerk reaction to call for somebody to be imprisoned for something that they did um, and that's normal and that's part of like this learning process. And I just want people not to run away from subjects and topics if they can that are difficult for them. Like if it, it, to the to a degree that is healthy, like have them stick around and just try to sort through feelings because again, like so much of this is wrapped up in our cultural identity uh, in America, in our racial consciousness in America or lack thereof. And so there's gonna be times where I feel like some of our listeners are going to maybe feel, you know, challenged by these things. And I would say that's a very good thing. And I think this book 
um, is a good place to challenge yourself as well. I mean, I think that just very quickly to those points there, when I was alerting people or signaling that there's perhaps a trigger warning around the sexual violence discussion, you know, I was thinking more of people who have experienced that, Absolutely. who live right. with uh, that kind of violence, but also, you know, is uh, someone who's, you know, lived this life and is impacted by, you know, carcerality in, in very personal ways, as I mentioned, you know, before, uh, in the first episode, you know, I have two sons in prison. And, you know, my personal life has been radically uh, transformed and impacted as a result of this. So I find reading these books difficult, mm-hmm. right? And maybe different than, you know, people who are new to this and have no background and, you know, might be very comfortable in their positions. And Mm -hmm. this is something that they're picking it up and saying, oh, I, you know, I'm digging this. This is interesting for me and I want to get into it. This shit is hard, right? It's hard. It's hard to reread. And, you know, I, I, in taking notes and I have dozens and dozens of pages of notes on this book already um, from years of, of talking about it. But going back over those notes is a, is a difficult exercise for me. Mm-hmm. Right? So I was thinking in terms of that, uh, because you know, one of the things that I also talk about a lot is self-care and self-care as an activist. So, you know, there are times when, you know, I was going through this in preparation for today and I was just like, shit, I need to put this down. I need to right. stop And I need to walk away from it because, you know, it just, it's triggering. And what I mean by that is that it brings up emotions and it makes it very difficult for you to proceed, you know, as if this is just, you know, some kind of like a novel or something doesn't have, you know, and and novels are really powerful and important. I'm not trying to belittle the the impact of novels. Um, But when this is your life and you're reading it, you know, in black and white and you're seeing, you know, sexual violence being described, particularly in terms of, you know, the, the example that I gave earlier about strip searches, Mm -hmm. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, on social media that, you know, my, my son had been strip searched twice uh, in a 24 hour period, you know, and when you think about that, you know, as Davis describes as, you know, other scholars, including Beth Ritchie have described it, you know, as sexual violence, as sexual assault, it, it's hard thing to go back and just be like, okay, I have to prepare notes for today's episode. Absolutely. So, you know, just, and that's where I was coming from with that. Uh, If other folks were untouched by this or feel as though their, their lives are so completely disconnected from, you know, from prisons are made to feel a little uncomfortable. Good. Right. That's what I'm saying. Too bad. Right. Um, You'll be all right. That's all I got to say, you know, (laughs) some less sympathetic, uh, you know, to that. But anyway, thank you so much, Brian. I really, I enjoyed talking to you this week. This was great. Yeah, thank you. And uh, keep an eye out for more episodes from us. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore prison. Um, And yeah, we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Kim. Thanks, Brian. Take care.